You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to a special edition of SpyCast. To celebrate Juneteenth, we have three African-Americans from different vantage points discuss three African-American spies from American history. This episode is timely because literally an hour ago, Juneteenth was made the 11th federal holiday here in the United States. Each of our guests introduces their chosen spy before we have a great conversation on America and the African-American experience. First up, we have Kaya Shivers on Harriet Tubman. Kaya founded the magazine Art Republic and is an academic, entrepreneur and activist. Next up, we have Ambassador Ruben Bridgette on Ralph Bunch. Ambassador Bridgette is the current Vice-Chancellor of the University of the South and former US Ambassador to the African Union. And last but not least, we have Mel Gamble on Willie Meckerson Jr., Mr. Gamble is a retired senior intelligence officer at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he was, among many other things, chief and deputy chief of stations in Africa and Latin America. Hope you enjoy. Well, I was thinking a good way to start would be for each of you just to give us five minutes on each of the figures. Tell our listeners a little bit more about who they are, why their story interests you and anything else that is significant that you would like to share with our listeners. We're going to start off with Kaia, who's speaking about Harriet Tubman. Then we're moving on to Ruben, who's speaking about Ralph Bunch. And then finally, Mel Gamble, who's speaking about Willie Merkerson Jr. So Kaia, tell us a little bit more about Harriet Tubman. All right. So Thank you so much for having me. Harriet Tubman is the patron saint to me of America. She is so revered and so celebrated. She almost has become a mythical like character. So we're going to bring some humanness to her, but also just talk about how dope she is. So before she gets into the Union Army and she joins the Union Army, she has been living for about 12 or 13 years as a self-emancipated woman, meaning that she escaped slavery. And she also has traveled anywhere between nine to 13 times back down to the Maryland area in order to free about 75 of her family members. And another thing is that this is a two for those who are almost middle age. She was 40 when she was recruited to join the Union Army. Her stories of her travels down south had gained so much attention that she was personally recruited by a Massachusetts governor, Governor John Andrew, in order to join the Union Army. So, you know, what we know is is that the Civil War is the bloodiest war, is known as the bloodiest war in American history. And so initially it was only white men who fought, but what happened because there was so much carnage going on and then you had other issues, some people did not want to fight, you had people escaping the war, 
they needed more bodies to fight. So initially there were nurses, there were male nurses and only a, a male exclusive armies or military that they had to not only recruit black people, they, they also had to recruit women. Harriet Tubman is one of these first women to be recruited. So the Massachusetts governor, John Andrew, sent her down to do this. When she got down, actually before she got down there, they redirected her to New York because they weren't allowing Black people to enter into these military camps. But the carnage had gotten so deep that they had to send her down. When she got down there, she saw that it was so bad. The encampments were infested with disease. A lot of the soldiers were not tended to. A lot of the enslaved did not eat. There was malaria. There was typhoid. There were all of these things. So she immediately went into action. So sometime during this, she is then, people are like, what is she doing? Even though she's a nurse, so she's serving as a nurse. But sometime during her serving as a nurse, as well as helping enslaved people learn how to start businesses in Beaufort, South Carolina, in the area, General David Hunter asked her to actually do what she came to do. That's scout and be a spy, right? So a lot of people, I think, fictionalize Harriet Tubman as being this lone wolf. No, when she goes down to South Carolina, she is in a network that is expansive from Canada all the way down into the deep South, that is mostly Black people, even though there are white abolitionists. And so she uses this knitted network that she has cultivated well over a decade. And she uses that in order to establish relationships locally, to tell the Union Army about rebel encampments, about ammunition spots, about entry points, waterways that they didn't know about that escaped slaves would use in order to get out that native people knew about. So she was feeding all this information. Now, when that information proved to be very successful and helpful, General David Hunter said, let Harriet Tubman do whatever she wants. So she was one of the few people, man or woman, who could travel back and forth because she also was a queen of disguise. She disguised herself as a farmer. She disguised, disguised herself as an enslaved woman. And she also disguised herself as a man. So she had these multiple, because she was very small in stature. A lot of people mistake her for being this large woman. She was about five feet. She was very small in stature. So how does Harriet Tubman go from a nurse to a scout to a spy, right? So as the war intensifies, there was a concerted effort to take out these specific points that would weaken the Union Army. South Carolina was a very stronghold. The problem was, is that the Union Army were losing soldiers. So then you have this large recruitment of black soldiers. Now, unbeknownst to a lot of people or unlike the film Glory, a lot of black people didn't want to join the army because they were very weary of white folks. So that was one of the reasons why Harriet Tubman was down there because she actually helped recruit a lot of the black soldiers, a lot of the Black men, she was already in communication with them and finding out these information in terms of mapping the spatial area. So she's actually the one who recruits and creates this military raid in June 1863. Now, I actually drove down South Carolina, down the uh, Combahee River. It's called the Combahee River Raid at night in 2018. It is pitch Black. Now, in addition to Harriet Tubman having all of this information from the network, she's a master at mapping the land and the water territories. She knows about herbs. All of these things that she used were integral in her going down that river in order to do a final big raid in which they burned down the military, burned down plantations, and they said between 700 to 800 enslaved people free. The irony of it all is after the war, she never received a pension. And it is when she fought for her pension that information of her and what she did in the war came about. She ends up getting pension, not from her service, but she marries a military vet, Nelson Davis, and receives his pension. But I could not finally, just say in conclusion, there are just things that she did that women could not do during that time because of the gender roles. She not only was in combat, but she led a mil military and she was free to go and come as she pleased, which was very rare as a Black person. But this also speaks to, this is where I'm going to throw in like the theory, this also speaks to 
how Black people, particularly in during that time, were able to be invisible and visible at the same time and were integral in winning, the Union winning the Civil War. Well, next up is Ambassador Brigitte. Actually, we got connected on Twitter. Um, you had tweeted about Ralph Bunch and his time in the OSS, and you mentioned that he was someone that you, you were fascinated by. So could you tell the listeners a little bit more about him? Some of our American listeners may have may know him from winning the Nobel Prize or receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but just tell us a little bit more about his life and in particular his life as a spy. Sure. It's an honor to be able to join you. And Ralph Bunch, in my estimation, is amongst the greatest, least known Americans, certainly as the years since his death has passed on. In short, as you mentioned, he is best known in the course of his career for being one of the founding leaders of the United Nations. He was part of the U.S. delegation to the San Francisco conference that created the United Nations. He served as essentially a a troubleshooter for all manner of crises uh, around the world in the early days of the U.N. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950 for his work in negotiating a ceasefire to the first Arab-Israeli crisis that created the state of Israel. However, Bunch was much, much more than that. He was born in 1904 in Detroit. He is the son of a barber and an amateur musician. His family, through a series of circumstances, ultimately relocated to Los Angeles after the death of his mother uh, and the abandonment of his family by his father. He was an extraordinary student, as well as a gifted athlete. He was the valedictorian of his, of his high school class, Jefferson High School in Los Angeles, and then went on to receive a scholarship to UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, where he studied international relations and graduated at the top of his class in Phi Beta Kappa. As a result of his extraordinary scholarship and with the support of his community, he went on to Harvard University where he earned a master's degree in political science and was particularly interested in questions of colonization, especially in Africa. He went on to go from there in 1938 to Howard University in Washington, D.C., the predominantly African-American university that trained generations of, of brilliant young people and also happens to be the alma mater of our first woman of color, Vice President Kamala Harris. He went to Howard in, in 1920, not 1938, I'm sorry, I misspoke. And he started the political science department at Howard University. And he continued to work on his doctorate, and he earned his doctorate in 1934. He became the first African-American to earn a doctorate in political science from any American university. And because his work was focused on Africa and on the politics of the emerging decolonization movement, because after 1934, he uh, went on to study at the London School of Economics and the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He actually spent an awful lot of time with people like Jomo Kenyatta and others that were kind of nascent young intellectuals and freedom fighters in these various places, particularly in London. And so when the war broke out, and the U.S. entered the war in 1941 after Pearl Harbor, Bunch was 37 years old by that point. So, and he also, interestingly, notwithstanding his athletic prowess as a young man, he also had some health issues, which ultimately did him in uh, at a relatively young age in 1968. And so he was recruited to join what was at the very beginning called the Coordinator of Information, uh, which was a kind of very small fledgling intelligence organization that later became the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And Bunch moved to OSS in their research and analysis branch and served as an analyst and chief of the Africa division there. And so, so far as we know, Bunch was not a clandestine operative, a spy classically termed. But we also know that he did extraordinary work in helping the United States understand this part of the world that interestingly, uh, we simply didn't have an awful lot of expertise on because there weren't very many people studying Africa. Bunch, in addition, is also widely credited as being the father of African studies in the United States by virtue of his academic work on his doctoral dissertation at, at Harvard and his teaching at Howard. And so after, as the war wound down and the work that he did both on writing reports of 
political developments, uh, especially in Eastern and Southern Africa, and a lot of the countries that were British colonies uh, at the time, and subsequently also writing manuals for that part of the world for American soldiers to uh, and other operatives to have a sense of what they were uh, engaging in. He transferred from OSS to the State Department and became the first African-American desk officer. He was desk officer for Africa. And subsequently went on to, to be part of the U.S. delegation to the San Francisco conference, and the rest, as they say, is history. And so, Bunch's contribution to uh, intelligence, in my view, is severalfold. First, is even those sort of operatives at the tip of the spear both need background information of the places where they're going to operate so that they can do their jobs, and that's what analysts do. And they also, when they bring that information back, somebody has to synthesize it. And that's also what analysts do. And so Bunch was clearly in the in the vanguard of that very important analysis function of, of intelligence. He also obviously was in the vanguard as an African-American and paved the way for many others who would go on to work in the intelligence services and he was obviously in the vanguard of African-Americans serving in international diplomacy and public service. The library at the State Department is named in his honor appropriately. And his is a legacy that all of us uh, who are African-American foreign policy professionals stand proudly on. And we simply could not be where we are were it not for his example. I'm sure I'm not the only one that hearing all of the things that Harriet and Ralph done in their lives is making me feel like an insecure underachiever uh, <laughs> because they just, <laughs> they just done such amazing things. On that note, over to Mel Gamble to speak about another fascinating figure, Willie Merkerson Jr. Thanks, Andrew, and I really appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate the part of uh, already uh, spoken about from Ambassador Brigadier and Professor Shivers on bunch who who I know, not personally, but from working at the CIA. And Harriet Tubman, as I've said before, she's uh, well-known, but we don't know everything about her. So I look forward to hearing more about from Professor Shivers on her. I told someone, we have a pattern here, which starts with the Civil War and then goes to World War II. So I added to that by picking out the Vietnam era. And the person that I'm going to talk about is still living. He's uh, Mr. Willie Murkison, who was an African-American special forces officer, and then later joined the CIA as an intelligence officer. I met Mr. Murkison in 1980 in Lagos, Nigeria. He was serving as the assistant army attache at the American embassy. And I was assigned there as the CIA officer, undercover as the State Department officer. We developed a relationship. He knew the Nigerian military officers and the culture very well. And through my boss, the chief of station, he introduced me and other CIA officers to people that he knew in the community to help us obtain a better understanding of events in Nigeria. This was an important period for U.S. foreign policy because the Nigerian military was preparing to transition from military to civilian rule. And there were many reports of uh, threats of coup and counter-coup attempts. And our job, the embassy's job, was to ensure a smooth transition from military junta leader and president Olusegun Obasanjo to then-elected president. Shehu Shagari. The transition went smoothly. And again, my boss, the uh, chief of station in Nigeria, was very impressed with Major Murkison and recommended that he consider joining the CIA after he retired from the military. After some consideration, uh, Major Murkison retired in August 1980 and joined the CIA soon afterwards. Now, I tell that part because that's almost in the middle of, of his career. Major Murkison, what many of us did not know at the time, was that he had received the uh, Distinguished Service Award, which is second down from the Medal of Honor. And Major Murkison had joined the military in 1957, but 
the period where he received the award was in 1968, where he was in Vietnam serving with a detachment, A223, Company B, 5th Special Forces Airborne. And as a special forces advisor to a Vietnamese task force conducting a search and destroy mission in Dinh Dinh province, a then Lieutenant Murkison led the two-company force against what turned out to be two North Vietnamese Army battalions. His unit encountered heavy gunfire, but he moved along the lines shouting encouragement, rallying the troops, and personally firing machine guns, mortars, and grenade launchers. He fearlessly led this attack through the encirclement of the enemy and under intense sniper fire. He set up an evacuation and treatment center for his wounded soldiers. He's now under consideration for the Medal of Honor. So that it makes everyone very proud of this individual. Mr. Murkison was a native of Columbia, South Carolina, which uh, brings us up to the point where, as I said, that was where I met him. Mr. Markison retired from the military and joined the CIA, first as a director of operations paramilitary officer and later as a director of operations case officer. During that time frame, he served in Latin America, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East and conducted operations in Europe. While serving in the CIA, he worked extensively with U.S. Special Ops Command and Joint Special Operations Command, otherwise known as JSOC, in the U.S. and overseas. He served as Chief of Operations at CIA Special Ops Group from 2009 to 2011. Mr. Murkison was involved in a number of operations, many of which I can't talk about, but uh, I can at some point give you an, a sense of what he was involved in in uh, one or two operations. I think what would be really interesting now would be just to put those figures into conversation with one another. So the first part would just be, we've got one figure in the Civil War, one around World War II, and one in the Vietnam War. What kind of links do you all see between them? Are there really strong connections or are they quite different types of figures? And give us a sense of how you would join those three lives together into a, a bigger narrative. If I may, you know, the, the thing that I think is most significant about what you're saying and putting those three figures in dialogue together is that it's not just those three, not even just those three individuals, but not even just those three wars. African-Americans have been involved in the security of this country to include what we would today call intelligence, literally from the earliest days of the Republic right through the present moment. And not just involved peripherally, but doing things that not only have been of great importance strategically or of great heroism tactically in any given circumstance, but have consistently demonstrated loyalty to a country that has not shown the same level of loyalty to them. And that's important for a variety of reasons to understand that. I get asked by young students of color all the time, how do I, student, feel like I belong in a certain place where there are very few people who look like me in various aspects of the foreign affairs establishment? And I have to remind them that they stand on the shoulders of their ancestors who have done this sort of work for centuries. And we don't know enough about them. And I don't simply mean that African-Americans don't know enough about their work. I mean, Americans don't know enough about their work. Because to understand the full measure of their devotion, as well as their competence, is to forever dispel the view that they have not been worthy of the full respect of their nation. And in the year 2021, that may seem like an outrageous claim, but it was precisely that view for the vast majority of our country's history that prevented the full inclusion of African-Americans in the American story. I want to add that several things, that excellent points. I also want to add that we're talking about three wars 
that were not only critical in American history, but were critical in world history. So this is very important. And Black people contributed to the shifts of how they played out. So that's one thing I want to earmark in this conversation. The second thing I want to say is, is that these three very complicated and accomplished individuals had multiple objectives. What Ambassador Brigitte points out is you can participate in something that you may not 100% are in agreement with, like Harriet Tubman, right? But the outcome, the overall objective is what she specifically was pushing for. I wanted to give like a really quick example is one of the generals that she works with or colonels that she works with in the Civil War is a man by the name of James Montgomery. James Montgomery was a really good friend of John Brown. John Brown was the white abolitionist who attempted to declare war and go into war with the United States government in order to abolish slavery. So why is a white abolitionist who was good friends with the man who waged war with the U.S. government siding for the Union Army? It was because he believed in abolition. He believed in the freeing of enslaved individuals, maybe not how the Union ran in its entirety. So there's these complicated junctures, I think, when we talk about these histories and these people that we need to acknowledge and they're not one note. Another thing I wanted to bring to the fore that Harriet Tubman does, I think it's is important, is, is that she would be considered today a disabled person. She either had either narcolepsy or epilepsy or a combination of the two. Right. So these are these things that, you know, we talk about how do these people maneuver and navigate in these very extreme circumstances. And I would say all three of these individuals provide a template of espionage and collecting intelligence that the United States government simply did not have because they did not have access in these communities like they did. So for the sake of the security, as Ambassador Brigitte says, for the sake of the security of the country, and maybe specifically to their communities, they offer this information. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And Mel, as a former senior intelligence officer, what are your thoughts? Well, at the fear of almost repeating in parts what Ambassador Brigadier and Professor Shivers have said, you know, all of them are significant because they wanted to do what was in the best interest of our country, a country that they loved and were a part of, even though in every respect, they were, you can pick the war, we were being denied that, that privilege. Of course, they wanted us to fight a civil war. We, we had to fight, meaning African-Americans. In uh, World War II, it was segregated, but Ralph Bunch did not let that deter him from doing it. And I have to give some credit to the OSS and General Donovan. He just saw you for what you brought to the table and not, not necessarily what color you were. These were people that didn't allow this to deter them. And the same could be said of Major Murchison in the Vietnam War, a war that was not eventually, we didn't feel was warranted and that many people could have walked away from it, but he didn't. He, he, he loved his country and he wanted to do the best. But the recognition, what, that's one factor. We tend to not to receive, we African-Americans tend not to receive in many of these occasions, but it's coming to the forefront today, which I'm very happy about. Awards is another thing. We don't look for awards, and most most people don't. But those that are given are not usually given to African Americans, whether in promotions or recognitions of their accomplishments or medals should honor them. And again, the irony is 
in this, the association between Major Murkison and get, hopefully getting the Medal of Honor and Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. If I can just add quickly to what Mr. Gamble said, uh, two things. First of all, I, I believe the woman he was talking about in France was Josephine Baker, who was uh, an American actress, first woman of color ever to appear in a motion picture. She heroically worked for the French resistance, having moved to Paris during World War II. She was personally awarded the Croix de Guerre by General de Gaulle for her efforts. And in the, in the point of awards and medals, I should also note something else I forgot. It's easy to forget, given all the accolades he got, that Ralph Bunch was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Kennedy in 1963. Yeah, great. Are there any questions that you're dying to ask each other about the respective figures that you spoke about? I would ask Mr. Gamble, to what extent is Mr. Is Major Wilkerson's story known within the CIA, particularly within the National Clandestine Service? How much is he seen as a hero to those people who within the NCS that may be uh, operatives of color? Thank you for that question, uh, Ambassador Brigadier. It's ironic, even for me, and I've known Major Murkison, well, since 1980, I counted the years on that, 40 years. And he never talked about his time in Vietnam. And it was only during when I had a meeting with some of the special ops people in the CIA that they even headed that they said, you know, he's an American hero. And we would look at him and look at this. And we thought in part they were joking, but they weren't. But no one would say anything. And it was you talk about timing. It was only within the past two weeks when I received this request from Andrew to speak about somebody, did Major Murkison send me the writer for the recommendation for the Medal of Honor from two special forces officers, and he asked me to review it. And that was when I learned what he had accomplished from that aspect. He was well-respected in the CIA as a operations officer. Again, there are many, many operations that he was involved in that we are all envious of uh, uh, from many, many aspects. But very few people know of his accomplishments in the military. And then the irony is very few people in the military know of his accomplishments in the CIA. So it makes it makes it very difficult. But we're trying to get that message out now. And this gives me one opportunity to recognize him as one of America's heroes. So thank you for that question. I have a question for, it could either be for Ambassador Brigadier or it could be for former intelligence officer, Mr. Gamble. How do you think the work that the two individuals you talked about, how do you think it plays in the current state of Africa today? It's interesting. For Black History Month, I've been tweeting and posting on social media, trying to do it every day a particular figure. And of all the ones that I uh, posted, Ralph Bunches got the most tweets and retweets. And what was really, there's actually a street named after him in Nairobi. And I got uh, a number of people tweeting on that thread, Kenyans, who said, I thought Ralph Bunch was Kenyan. <laughs> I had no idea he was an American, which then made them go back and kind of look more about his history. Like, wow, I, I had no idea, like about all the things that this this man did. And so I think, you know, it's almost as if we are at a point now where we're kind of rediscovering heroes and for a variety of reasons, just because the nature of information flow is so much easier now than it was before, because things can go viral. And frankly, because, you know, 300 years from now, people are going to look back on this last century or so and, and see just how much has changed and how unbelievably quickly, you know, for example, countries in Africa move from being essentially subjects of European powers to being fully independent states to having their own questions within them about democracy and leadership and, and generational change in the context of you know, the most profound technological and, and economic changes the world has ever seen. So it's a long way of saying that I think certainly in Bunch's case, People are, are, are beginning to, to look at not only just what he did as a person, but what the things he did at the time meant for the kinds of lives that they're able to lead today and what their future can look like as well. 
Major Murkison, I think that he's revered in a number of locations for what he's done and the relationships that he's maintained. He's been well-respected. And, you know, there's a, a big difference for people, I say, you know, that go to Africa and that they go there and they think they know it, but they, they really don't know it. It's when you you can talk to the taxi driver or the, the guy that's cleaning the street and you know the people, not just the, uh, the bureaucrats, but the people. That's when you, you get a sense of, to me, of understanding what, what Africa is all about. And, and Major Murkison had that, that quality in a number of uh, countries uh, that, that he lived in. And they reach out to him to today to talk about it, regardless of the fact that, that he's CIA. They knew that uh, he was CIA in, in many of those cases, but that had nothing to do with who he was as a person. I have a question for you, uh, Professor Shivers. On You mentioned on Harriet Tubman that today she would be viewed with uh, disability. And I served on President Biden's uh, and Harris's uh, transition team on the intelligence community, but also on the diversity aspect of it. And one thing that I, I saw, I learned more about was not just looking at diversity from the color or people of color perspective, but from the disability perspective. And I'm just trying to figure out how would, could you expound a little more on, on uh, Harriet Tubman and what would have been considered a disability for her? That's an excellent, excellent question. Thank you for asking. And I have some follow-up questions, too. This is a great conversation. So when Harriet was about eight or nine, so Harriet Tubman's mother worked in the house. She was a house slave, and so was Harriet Tubman. However, what happened is, is that there was somebody, the inheritances of slaves were divided. And so Harriet Tubman was actually sent to multiple different plantation homes to serve as the cook or the domestic. So when she was about eight or nine or 10, there was an overseer chasing another slave and threw some type of iron something in the direction of the slave that was running. But it just so happened that Harriet, they called her Minty. Minty was walking and she was the one who got hit in the head. So from then on, she would have what they would call sleeping spells, which was also a form of what we would call narcolepsy, but there were also some descriptions of when she came out of it. It might have been epilepsy as well. Uh -huh. How the documentation or when they did interview her, she said that it was at these moments that she would go into, she would have sleeping spells. She described it almost as, as a trance. When she would come out of it, she would have more clarity in how she would move when she was transporting people. What foods or what herbs in the forest would be best to treat different ailments. And so she used what we would call disability as an ability in her comings and goings. But I think it was also part of her disguise too, as being presented as a frail person. She was highly intelligent. Her memory to map things and know them over and over again, over not hundreds, but thousands of miles. It's crazy. Her remembering people and having a network, her ability to lead, she had actually led men and also was in communication with generals and colonels. This is, was even unheard of, of even just basic men in the military. Thank you. As someone that never grew up in the United States and wasn't educated here, how much do each of these figures come up in the education system. How did you all come to learn about each of these figures? Did everyone learn about Harriet Tubman in school, but the other figures later in life? And help me understand that. Well, you know, I think that many of us Americans here have heard about Harriet Tubman in school, but we heard like the 60-second paragraph version. Nothing close to the level of detail 
that her life warrants that one would know, say, of other great Americans, whether they be, you know, presidents or generals or, or whatever. And I think the movie Harriet that came out a couple of years ago uh, has done a great deal in order to further educate Americans, certainly, certainly for me. With regard to Ralph Bunch, you know, I'm uh, obviously kind of a foreign policy nerd, as it were, as all of my fellow foreign policy nerds are. And, you know, I just kind of started to hear about him. You know, the, the, there's, a, the, there's a Ralph Bunch Center at Howard that is named after him. The library at the State Department uh, is named after him. You know, and there's a very great uh, biography written by one of his uh, young deputies, a guy named Sir Brian Urquhart, who actually just died about a month or so ago. And the more I read about him, I was like, he is almost everything I want to be. He had some challenges with his personal life, <laughs> his health, but everybody can be an instructor to you, both sort of positively or negatively. And so I have, I wouldn't exactly go so far as to call it a shrine, but I have like a little kind of, you know, shelf in my office that is dedicated exclusively to Bunch, various books on him and, and a poster of him. And, you know, part of my informal mission in life is just to continue to highlight this amazing American as an example of what you know, many of us should aspire to be. For me, I think that's an excellent question, Andrew, but I'm going to show my age because when I uh, was in elementary school and high school in Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C., in McLean, Virginia, as Ambassador Brigadier said, it was just a rough thing. We were slaves. We brought, brought over in 1609, and that was life until the Civil War and then freedom. Nothing else in between, not talking very much about anyone else. And that was the way it was until I went to Howard. I attended Howard University, and I was fortunate enough to be there during a very difficult period, 66 to 70, where we began to ask those questions, who are we? And why are we not talking about African-Americans or Black Americans at that time more? And to define who we are and what role did we play in history, I was a history major. And so everything was, uh, all the history was about everyone else but us. And again, Africa was viewed as a place where they were gaining independence, but they weren't very relevant. Well, after we started asking those questions, there was a revision at Howard about inclusion and redefining who we were by ourselves. So that's been a process. And it's it's sad to say that, you know, 50 years later or so, we're still talking about these things, but we, we really need a revision in the books and in education that makes it more pronounced. And not just about us, African-Americans, but about people of color and other ethnic groups as well. I just want to add to that, if that's okay, a couple, not a couple, years ago, I interviewed Elaine Brown, who was a former member of the Black Panther Party. And she was talking about the complicated life of Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, she was frustrated because the educational system had, had sterilized him. And she said something like, the way that they're whitewashing Martin Luther King, in 20 years, he's going to be a, a, a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes. And I, think that's, <laughs> and I think that's what they did to somebody like Harriet Tubman. I mean, how many women do you know carried a gun and knew how to use a gun and wasn't afraid to use a gun? That still is something that might be even considered taboo today, especially a Black woman carrying a gun, right? But I also want to say some years ago, I went to Vietnam, did this cruise to Vietnam, and there were all of these black men that were my father's age and would stop me and tell these stories. Well, I discovered that they were all in the Vietnam War and they were returning back to Vietnam for the first time since the war. Seeing that, I still get chills thinking about them walking and just going through this terrain, thinking about their 19, 18-year-old selves, 20-year-old selves, and they were crying. And at that point, I thought about just not only the Vietnam War, but all the wars and all the stories that are lost and that will never be told. We really need to really reemphasize not only the contributions, but the costs of, of war, which is an important part of history. Being in Italy, I want to say this, there is a town 
which was highlighted in a Spike Lee movie a couple of years ago that every year celebrates African-Americans for their contributions in World War II. I actually have a coworker here at NYU Florence whose father were one, was one of those men or one of the African-American men to contribute in terms of securing Italy. There is just not a history period in the American education system on a general basis that's told, but specifically to this, these contributions because these are conversations about citizenship, in my opinion, ultimately. On SpyCast, we had Lauren Wilkinson on, who has this great novel out called American Spy. And in that novel, and speaking to Lauren, she talks about, in America, there's a focus on her Africanness, but when she goes to Africa, the focus is on her Americanness. So it just made me think about you know, the figures we are speaking about today. So, you know, sure, they're important in African-American history, but as we've discussed this morning, they're important in American history and in world history. So I wondered if you could just unpack. There's a lot to do there, but the Africanness, the Americanness, uh, their role as part of the African diaspora and their role in, in world history, not just the history of the African-American community. So there's all kinds of directions we can go here and this could easily go on for for a long time. But I just wondered if you had any thoughts on... Well, Andrew, you're correct. That's a whole other podcast. But I would say just very briefly, one, I think that quote gets exactly right. I certainly have lived that where in the United States as an African-American, it's almost impossible to escape what's African-American-ness. But everywhere else I've been in the world, including in Africa, I'm seen as an American first. Certainly once people sort of hear you speak and sort of get to know you, and that's especially true amongst other, uh, other people of African descent. And interestingly, you know, my experience in Africa tells me that for the United States, our searing engagement with the continent is slavery. But for Africans, their searing engagement is colonialism, and which in some ways one can understand because it affected them much, much more directly. But let me just kind of close uh, rapidly before we do this next podcast again, because you need a whole other one to unpack this, as I say. The reason to, to address these sorts of figures is because this is American history. It is American history. I mean, you, and you frankly cannot fully understand the history of America without understanding the history of those people who were otherwise dispossessed or treated as second-class citizens for the vast majority of our history and yet still loved America and served her anyway. And quite frankly, as a foreign affairs professional, I'm very grateful for what the International Spy Museum is doing to help educate Americans about the role of intelligence, the eyes and ears of our country, which are our first line of defense, and knowing that uh, African Americans have played such a pivotal role in this uh, critically important function is something that all Americans need to understand. Yeah, and we even have an exhibit on James Lafayette, but that could also be another podcast. (laughs) So any thoughts, Kaia and Mel? Well, I couldn't have said it any better than Ambassador Brigitte, uh, but uh, I will add sort of a little short eye-opener for me. When I was working in South Africa, I was working with the South African Intel Service, and one of the one person that I was working with was a uh, Afrikaner, white Afrikaner, who we were sitting down one day. We got to know each other very well, and he said to me, "He's you know he was concerned about his his kids, and he was thinking about sending them to school in the U.S." And he he looked at me and he said, "You know, if I send my kids to the U.S., will they be considered African Americans?" And my first reaction was, no. <laughs> but then he laughed. It was that smirk that he had and his laugh. And then I said, you know what? You've got a point here because, you know, you're, you're in Africa and you're African-American. But it was more an inside joke than anything. But to reiterate what Ambassador Brigitte said about it, we're African-Americans here, but in, in Africa, we are viewed as, as Americans. And they accept that, but we are working more and more, much more closely with each other in trying to resolve world conflicts. And, and, and that's what did my heart well to see not only in Africa, but the rest of the world, the reaction to the uh, killing of uh, George Floyd. 
I just want to echo everybody's sentiments and just a couple of things. I got stranded in Nigeria when I was 25. I started off as Kaia. At the end, my hair was shaved and I was named Timmy Tayo. I'm telling you, you <laughs> it was an experience, right? And so in that experience, I learned the double consciousness in a whole other way to be, what is it, to, to be American and to be Black, which is, you know, what this conversation is ending on. But I just want to say we, we are a diverse people. We're heterogeneous, mm-hmm. not only all over the world, but in the United States, the three people who are talking right now, we have different perspectives, different lives, different politics, I'm pretty sure of it. But I want to, I just want to leave maybe with the ancestor, Harriet Tubman. If she were here today, I think she would say, thank you for putting me on a $20 bill, but pay Black people in this country what they are owed. (laughs) Well said. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. God bless. Thanks. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.